0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dissidents and Dictators. I'm Alicia Maldonado, and with me, as usual, is loquacious Casey Michelle.
1: Oh, extremely loquacious.
0: In today's episode, we'll be joined by Joyce Ho, the Human Rights Foundation's Asia-Pacific Policy Officer. We'll be talking about Taiwan's recent elections, what they mean for the future of democracy on the island, and, of course, the menace across the street. Stay tuned. Hello, Joyce. Hi guys. Location. Hi, hi, Joyce is here. I'm really how nervous. Are, this is so exciting. This could be great. How are you? I'm sweating bullets right now. That's good. That's how you should. Good. It's the very hot.
1: hot. It's <laughs> very hot in here. The radiator is blasting.
2: It's not related to the heat.
0: Oh, okay. Well, uh, we're giving you an out there. Um, tell us about yourself, Joyce.
1: Joyce, what are you? What are you doing here today?
0: Yeah, what are you doing here? I don't know. Gosh. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Yeah,
2: uh, I am the policy officer for the Asia-Pacific region here at the Human Rights Foundation, basically covering all things related to human rights in Asia. So our research outputs, our activist community, um, our partnerships with our Asia partners, um, all of that good stuff.
1: Joyce, that's that's a big region.
2: It is. It's a huge region. That's a
1: huge issue that you alone are tackling.
2: That's why I can't sleep at
1: night. That's right. That's why you're sweating. <laughs> I have so much Sweating awareness. bullets. That's right. That's exactly. right. That's right. Joyce, how long have you been doing this for?
2: Not a long time. I'm pretty young.
1: <laughs> oh, you Rub are. You are. You are. And yet you already become a leader in this space as it pertains to human rights uh, in Asia.
2: I don't know if I'm a leader, but... Um, well, you're certainly not a follower. I would like to say so. I think you're yes. going to own it. But yeah, I've been, well, I haven't been at HRF for too long. I previously, I don't know if you guys knew this, I was an intern back in no, 2021.
1: No. no, but I could see that.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I was an intern, and then I did some stuff abroad, and then I came back recently this past summer. It's
1: very exciting. Yeah. It's extremely exciting. I remember when you came back, everyone, I didn't know who you were, and when you got the standing applause, standing ovation when you came in, I was very confused.
2: When I was, you know, brought in on my, on a pedestal. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's Casey right. was like, who's
1: That is what on? we like to, uh, that's how we like to celebrate former interns
0: uh,
1: that have been promoted.
0: When she started here, she was really young, and then she came back and she was still young.
1: That's exactly, exactly. I mean, the good news in terms of, you know, aging and, you know, that kind of, you know, a, a lifetime ahead of you is uh, it seems like um, we're going to need some time. I mean, I would love, of course, all the human rights issues in Asia to be solved you know, tomorrow, next week, next month, <laughs> my sense is it's not going to take that short period of time, but maybe a little bit longer moving forward. Is, is that your sense, Joyce?
2: I would agree with that. That's an accurate assessment. Okay, it's go. not going to be done within a month, unfortunately.
0: No. Joyce, let's talk about your recent op-ed in The Hill. Um, on Taiwan's elections, which took place last month. That piece is called Taiwan's ruling party needs to double down on democracy. Um, in that piece, you know, you kick it off by talking about the Democratic People's Party um, having won a tight presidential race in January. Uh, but you say it's much too early to bask in the win.
2: Yeah, I think it is too early. So this is the first time that the DPP, which is the ruling party in Taiwan, has won its third elections. and. Taiwan's first direct presidential elections happened in... Uh, it's
1: 1996. I know that one. Oh, yes. Nice. Thank
2: you, Casey. Yeah. So, I, I know facts. I mean, short history for a party to be this dominant in its history is, is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what all the headlines were running with. But that being said, if you look at the margins, if you look at the numbers, the fact that they lost the legislature, mm. not a
0: great sign. And how many did they lose that by? We say that in the piece, right? Yeah. You- so they only
2: secured 51 seats. Um, and so they don't have a majority.
1: Well, incoming President Lai only won, what, 40 percent? didn't even win a majority outright, right?
2: Yeah. He only won approximately zero five percent of the total vote. Yeah. So, um, obviously, it's still, we can all breathe a sigh of relief that the Beijing-friendly KMT didn't win. But that being said, they don't really have, you know, that much, they have a big hill ahead of them in terms of actually getting stuff done instead of, in terms of actually passing, you know, legislature and laws that they want
1: to... Well, let's pause for a moment and kind of just run folks through the difference in terms of policy Uh, outcomes, policy preferences, and and especially relations with with Beijing between DPP and and KMT. I mean, I think, can you give folks just kind of an elevator pitch what the main differences between the two are?
2: When mainland China was going through their, you know, revolution, as some people call it, a faction of that party that was against the ruling China Communist Party in mainland China fled to Taiwan. Got it. And so the KMT is viewed as a legacy of that. They also had a very authoritarian history in the island and actually, uh, you know, had a dictatorship at some point. And um, and so the DPP kind of was born out of those freedom movements and for a long time was seen as this outsider party that was bringing in uh, freedom and democracy to the island that was kind of being overrun by the KMT. So the KMT is seen as very pro-Beijing, Beijing friendly, um, in my terms, a little bit delusional in terms Mm -hmm. of believing that we can, the islands can cooperate with such a behemoth of an enemy across the street.
1: I think delusional is a great term. I mean, I think it's frankly surprising for a lot of observers outside of Taiwan to look at the KMT, which is not a non-it. I mean, it still got a substantial portion of the vote, even though it didn't get the presidency in, in the recent election. Still having these kind of overtures with with Beijing, saying there's a potential path forward, potential peace and prosperity, all while President Xi and the rest of his CCP cronies, I mean, God knows how much threatening, Mm -hmm. whether it's naval exercises, whether it's rhetoric, whether it's policy itself, strangling, attempting to strangle the Taiwanese economy, so on and so forth, and yet you still have KMT voices saying, no, 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 we can do business with them, it's all fine and good.
2: I mean, I think from any outsider side or perspective, we really, at least especially here at ADRAF, don't think that's a tenable route forward. Um, but that's the the position that the KMT has continued to hold. So the DPP, on the other hand, has been a very st- served as a very stark contrast. They're also very socially liberal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. very pro LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they used to be an outsider uh, party, so to speak, people were concerned because they were so uh, steadfast on democracy that they would start a war with China. Mm-hmm. But actually, with President Tsai's term, she was able to create a legacy of saying, we can be steadfast in our position on Taiwanese independence without stirring the pot too much and really angering our neighbor across the strait. Mm-hmm. And so that was really great. And that was what most people would say would propelled her um, to success and victory for her two terms. Of, yeah,
0: for multiple of that.
2: However, the problem that I think the DPP faces, and which is what I talk about in the op-ed as well, is that now at your third term, you are the ruling party. You're Mm. no longer that fresh outsider that's bringing a new perspective. How are you going to maintain the status quo? And I would say that's the biggest problem for the DPP
1: in these coming years. I wanna turn back to something you mentioned a moment ago, Joyce, which was this idea of Taiwanese independence itself. President incoming, current vice president, incoming president, presumably will continue president, outgoing president Tsai's positions, Policies regarding Taiwanese independence—that is to say, not calling for it right now. This is not a central plank. This is not an incoming government that will head full bore toward Taiwanese independence. Uh, Beijing obviously seems to think. Otherwise, who knows how much of this rhetoric, how much of this actual policy is trickling up to President Xi himself? Is that is that a correct assessment from uh, where you're sitting, Joyce?
2: That's exactly right. Well, that's great. Gosh,
1: it's <laughs> like I read your It's like I read your notes in preparation. <laughs> for this.
2: Um, that's exactly right. Uh, and that they're not going to come out with any official proclamation because their position is that we are already independent and we, so we don't need to make a show for anyone. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, didn't he recently, was he like soft on kind of the China stance or was that just Biden as well? The thing is that Lai previously, not recently, okay, but previously
2: okay. has been a little bit more wishy-washy. Right. Okay, that's exactly it. Exactly. And he has, um, you know, made comments in the sense that he's willing to cooperate. And then now, because he's coming into this presidential role, he's kind of sticking back to Tsai's uh, rhetoric. And so, you know, there is wishy-washiness there. Yeah. And uh, I think that... Moving forward, he needs to be more clear on that because I think that voters are also going to be confused as to what the DPP stands for. And the reality is that the DPP, well, Taiwan needs a party that is really steadfast on its democratic, you know, government Mm -hmm. in Asia. The fact that it is the counterpoint to
0: CCP authoritarianism. And standing strong in the face of such a menace as we talked about at the beginning. Exactly. Uh,
1: Joyce, question for you. I don't want to put you in President Xi's shoes or, or mine because that's a, that's a terrifying place to be. How much of the role of Taiwanese democracy as a flourishing democracy, a free and fair democracy, and proof that free and fair democracy can succeed in the region, how, how much of that plays a role in Xi's threats, in his rhetoric, in the militaristic posturing and potential threats of invasion, versus you know the kind of overarching as he says, need for eventual reunification is going to happen, so on and so forth. How much of it is also the fact, or maybe even simply the fact, that Taiwan is proof positive that democracy can thrive, can flourish in the region, as, again, you mentioned, as against the CCP's authoritarianism?
2: Yeah, I mean, I will say, it it probably keeps them up at night. Uh, Not that, again, I don't want to, I also don't want to put myself in Xi's shoes too much, but... Um, The rhetoric for so long is that not just China, but that the Sinosphere, the Chinese-speaking people, that also includes, you know, Singapore, that includes a lot of um, Chinese communities in Malaysia and all throughout Asia, that they don't want democracy. Where there are people who have been governed for so long Mm -hmm. and are so used to authoritarian governance that giving them democracy would be like, you know... um, It just, they wouldn't, they would be like children who don't know what to do with themselves. And so Taiwan is an exact opposite counterpoint to that. And um, it really disrupts the entire foundational, like, ideology of the CCP, and I think that scares She a lot. I was
1: gonna say, in terms of the identity on the island itself, in Taiwan itself, there's there's a there's a great piece in Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, which we can put in the show notes talking about you know, just kind of broader overarching historic developments in Taiwan. And one of the most striking graphs that they shared was this real divergence that we have seen over the past 15, 20 years in terms of how Taiwanese adults identify themselves. And presumably this is generational as well, where you see this just giant spike in preference of identifying. Primarily as Taiwanese, if not only as Taiwanese, rather than both Taiwanese and Chinese, um, you know, let alone o- only Chinese itself. Just can you comment on what what is causing that? Is that playing a role in p- policy developments? Is that playing a role in Taiwan's d- democratic developments as well, or is that just kind of something that is parallel and adjacent? I
2: would say that the two are intermittently linked. It's obviously a symptom of the fact that it's a young country, and so I think people are trying to figure out their identity, Mm -hmm. what it means, you know, their personal identity as it relates to this nation being formed and realizing. So I think back, you know, when people were still fleeing to Taiwan from mainland China, uh, a lot of people still identified as ethnically Chinese because Mm -hmm. that's their family, that's their heritage, and that's what they felt was um, who they were. Mm -hmm. But as you grow up in this nation that has different values, that has a different government, that is running things differently, uh, you start to realize that maybe I'm not Chinese in the way that I thought I was. And I I think that explains the graph that Casey just mentioned, which is that people are realizing it's okay to identify And also acknowledge that Taiwan has a distinct identity. Mm -hmm. It's founded, you know, culturally, there are parallels to Chinese, broader Chinese culture. But they also care a lot about freedom Mm -hmm. and democracy Mm -hmm. and equality and fairness. And it's okay to put a stamp on that and say, I'm Taiwanese. It is incredible
1: to see this distinct. I mean, again, if you just listen to Xi, you would think that, you know, the CCP and Taiwan are one and the same. They've always been the same. Of course, Taiwan's going to return to the fold at some point. Without realizing that there is this incredible, this deep, this centuries-long distinct history of Taiwan as a polity unto itself, to say nothing of the indigenous populations that were there before the 1940s, so on and so forth, um, which you just mentioned a a moment ago, in terms of forming this distinct regional, cultural, even national identity, moving forward in Taiwan.
0: And I think it's even—I think it's growing even more. I mean, I always say like, I have not been to a country where you can feel a love of freedom and democracy and. I mean, it kind of sounds silly to say that, but you really do. You really can feel that. And I think it's because they have that direct view of what it could be if they were ruled by authoritarians like Xi. So they have that example, that, and they, they see it. They see all of the um, military exercises every day that the CCP you know, does along the straight. I'm reminded
1: of the Ukrainians uh, yes. as well. Certainly, they, I think you know future historians will look at the Ukrainian-Taiwanese parallels. Uh, maybe as one of the same, obviously, plenty of differences and distinctions, but one of the same story in terms of... The fight on the ground for democracy and, frankly, a reminder to the rest of us mm-hmm. sitting in our you know cozy little offices here in democratic societies in the West of
0: really what's on the line and what we take for granted every single day. And, if, again, if you look at those election results that Joyce wrote about, the, such a slim margin is a reminder that you, you can lose that, you know, and, and the narrative could shift completely. Um, for the KMT, you said they're pro-Beijing. Is that kind of just a hereditary sort of thing, or are they bought? They're
2: definitely bought. I mean, yeah. at this point, there's no way yeah. um, CCP has their have their hands in in everyone's pockets, yep. or and vice versa as well. Um, so you know, that's also something that China uses a lot. It honestly it uses it politically in terms of business, and also for artists as well to mm. say, hey, do you want access to mainland Chinese markets, which you know are one point. I don't know what the number is now exactly, but three, I want to say, two, three billion people, Mm -hmm. then you have to, um, you know, if you play by our rules, we'll give you a little bit of that cut.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that is where it intersects with the diplomatic space as well. I know, Joyce, you you highlighted in the notes for this, Nauru's, you know, the small um, uh, Pacific nation of Nauru's recent uh, decision to, I mean, I guess, how how would we phrase this? No longer recognize Taiwan as any any kind of independent actor? Mm
2: yeah and basically uh, switch to China's stance which is that ultimately the two are to be united in one sovereignty and,
1: and and i think of beijing's broader diplomatic pushes you know it's it's funny because i'm i'm reminded of uh, you know a few years ago with them going to the solomon islands and there being evidence of literal just bags of cash mm-hmm. being floated around among legislators in the solomon islands To have the same exact diplomatic outcome, there hasn't been nearly enough investigation as it pertains to Nauru itself, which I should, I'm sure listeners will remember, is also one of the very few nations that sided with Russia during the invasion of Georgia back in 2008. Really wonderful history in terms of legislative decisions (laughs) on, on Nauru. Um, but, but I have to imagine you know, that interplay also mirrors what we have seen with the KMT, these kind of corrupt financial secret uh, uh, financially secret networks, uh, swaying uh, uh, influencing legislators to effectively do Beijing's bidding.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something that I would say people aren't really paying attention to as much, but China is actually very also invested in diplomacy in the Pacific mm-hmm. in these tiny islands that no one has ever really heard about for that exact reason. Taiwan is trying to battle against, and unfortunately they're losing the battle in terms mm-hmm. of trying to find diplomatic allies, and right. so they have to go to these smaller countries. That really offer them not that anything exactly. in terms of substance, but... Exactly. You know. And so Taiwan is, uh, China I should say, is um, then leverages all of right. their power and their funds to then go into the Pacific country, uh, Pacific um, islands, and offer them an alternative. And well, this kind of comes back to the op-ed as well, but Taiwan has had a tricky uh, journey in terms of trying to find diplomatic mm-hmm. allies, some of whom are actually very authoritarian and don't align with their own values. And I, in the op-ed, I also talk about how that's something that I think Taiwan needs to correct. What are some of those countries? Yeah, well, as Alicia knows, because we were in the Azo Freedom Forum in Taiwan together, and this was actually um, a topic that we talked a lot about there, mm-hmm. Taiwan has uh, maintained diplomatic relations with a country that was formerly known as Swaziland and now has uh, rebranded to
1: Eswatini. We call it Swaziland. Re- exactly. Rebranded is a great term <laughs> there. Because that, that was simply a top-down decision, right? But, that you know, wasn't any yeah. kind of democratic decision exactly. in Swaziland to rename the country.
2: Exactly. The king woke up and said, I want to name it well, this. We,
1: we don't honor that, the, the absolute monarch, as, I, as, as far as I recall, the only one remaining on the continent in that's Africa, just right. yes, decided right. one day to rename.
2: Yeah. And so, and they um, are, you know, uh, the the king basically calls all the shots. He has arbitrarily detained uh, so many, you know, dissidents, journalists, and anyone who is against him. And had them killed as well. And had them killed as well, including um, a very dear community member to HRF, Tulani Maseko. And so when we went to the Oslo Freedom Forum in Taiwan, we actually had um, his, his wife, um, Tanele Maseko talk on the main stage. And
0: spoiler alert, she's going to be on the podcast in a couple weeks.
2: <gasps> I'm so excited. Sorry, sidebar. <laughs> Tanele has a fantastic voice, she's and you best. guys need to tap into that. So do you, Joyce. No, she she's has singing. Sh- a singing. She can, oh, she's like a Whitney. Ha- you don't have that. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, but yes. yes. Tanele. Tanele spoke on the uh, main stage and really asked Taiwan and the Taiwanese audience members and said, if you're really and truly supportive of democracies, including democracies around the world, you have to cut ties with an authoritarian regime that is willing to you know, assassinate political opponents at the behest of the king. Mm-hmm. That's not a true democracy. If you can't, not only do you have to be able to build your own democracy, but you have to be able to help other emerging democracies sure sustain that as well. And so by enabling
0: an authoritarian monarchy, you're not truly committing to these principles. And it's also not getting you closer to what you want. You know, if, if the CCP is willing to go in and take off these tiny little island, you know, Pacific countries that really can't help them or Taiwan, just because they can, and just to prove they can isolate Taiwan even further, they're not going to help themselves by choosing another authoritarian regime.
1: And this, and this gets back to, us to what you were talking about a moment ago about Taiwan acting as an example, mm-hmm. not, I mean, now, not only for the region itself, but for any other kind of democratic movement, looking at those who can use democracy, who lean on democracy to stand up in the face of aggression, in the face of dictatorship and imperialism and so on and so forth, but do so successfully as we've seen out of Taipei.
2: Exactly. I do want to add one note also. There has been some rumblings recently about CCP officials also approaching Swazi uh, diplomats to, really? yeah, to talk about building relations there. And so if you're choosing your allies incorrectly, they can be bought off yeah. by the CCP if you don't have those shared commitments and those shared fundamental beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so Taiwan is walking down a very tricky path down there. And I, I think a lot of us would caution against that.
1: Well, yep. I look forward to the news and the reports of all the bags of cash that are floating <laughs> around the king's palace very soon.
0: As if he needs more.
1: Uh, Joyce, what else, if anything, are you looking for? We have the elections. We have the third term of DPP incoming. What else are you keeping an eye open for in Taiwan regarding uh, relations uh, uh, You know between uh, uh, Taiwan and Beijing? Anything else on your plate uh, in the coming weeks and months?
2: Yeah, I would say the other thing that we would look at is uh Koenje's party which is the Taiwan's People Party. Okay. Another acronym to throw in there the TPP. The TPP. So we have the DPP, yeah, the KMT, KMT, the CCP
1: yep. and the TPP.
0: Yeah. I like the peace. If you wanted to be more confusing. The whole
1: alphabet. There's
0: also a CPP out there. Stop. <laughs> the CPP, <laughs> stop, stop you right there. That is just the CCP trying to confuse people.
2: <laughs> so the ruling party which is the Democratic People's Party, the DPP, um, the KMT, which is the Kuomintang, uh, they are the pro-Beijing party. And then the last third party that kind of emerged was the Taiwan's People's Party, which is the TPP. Anyways, um, the TPP is a third party at this point. Um, and they also had a guy named Ko wen on the ticket. And he didn't win, but he did garner 26% of the vote. Mm. And that's not unsubstantial. And in terms of the legislature, they are only have like eight seats. But since no one has a majority, they end up they're going to be able to cut a lot of the shots. shots. And Ko is he's dangerous because he's um, he has no political back. He has no backbone. Yeah. Yeah. So he started off being very friendly toward the DPP, being in support of pro-democracy initiatives and then slowly but surely moving over to Beijing friendly KMT. And uh, I don't want to say he's like a Trump-like figure because he's nowhere Mm. near there. Yeah. But he, you know, doesn't like to be politically correct.
1: There are elements of populism.
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, there is some appeal to, or, you know, I don't want to, put any claim on it, but he has appeal amongst young voters. Um, And so he's speaking to people's frustrations with the DPP. He's speaking to people's frustrations with the status quo. The
1: fatigue that you mentioned earlier.
2: Exactly, the fatigue, you know, rising housing prices, basic needs that people feel aren't being met. Um, And so I would say that his party right now is looking really good. They have an outsized position of power.
1: So as with everything politics in a democratic nation, Things are in flux. Things are interesting. And there's plenty in store moving forward for Taiwan's democratic experiment. And plenty you'll be keeping an eye on.
0: Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Joyce. Uh, Casey, do you think uh, Harry Styles would be happy with that episode? I
1: I think Harry Styles would not only be happy, I think he'd appreciate especially the fact that Joyce ran through all of the names of all of the parts. Because again, we're talking mm-hmm. about, I'm pretty sure all 26 letters in the alphabet.
0: Yeah, kind of <laughs> they look, really I, do. I get
1: extremely confused by the smallest differences in things of so TPP, DPP, CCP. It's all very confusing for yep. me. So again, I, I know Joyce is gone already, but I just wanted to shout her out one more time.
0: Yes, Joyce. To
1: appreciate her coming on, but also helping me understand what all these initials and acronyms are all about. All right, we'll see everyone next week. Same time, same place, same fight for democracy.
0: Thanks, everybody. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally with a focus on closed societies. We promote freedom where it's most at risk in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes.